welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille, and I'm talking from the Alan Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. We're soon approaching the 50th anniversary of Trudeau-mania, an utterly unprecedented moment in our history when Canadians just went crazy over its new Prime Minister, Pierre-Elliott Trudeau. With me in the studio is Paul Litt, Professor of History and Canadian Studies at Carleton University. Litt is the author of many books, including Trudeau-mania, University of British Columbia Press. Welcome to the microphone, Paul. Thanks. It's nice to be here. Paul, we've known each other for many years, and full disclosure to our listeners, you and I have been talking about Trudeau-mania for as long as I remember. You were a kid when this mania took hold. Do you have any personal memory of it? Yeah, well, thanks for dating me, but... <laughs> I do, and all, all, I I remember, myself, don't worry. all I remember really is a campaign poster from our local liberal candidate, which featured Trudeau. And then the main thing I remember is the sense of excitement. And so, you know, where did that sense of excitement come from? I don't know. I think it, a lot of it came from my mother. Oh, well, this, this is very telling. This is very <laughs> yeah, telling. Yeah, who would have been about 40 years old at the time and, you know, had a background where she was educated, city-bred. And quite taken by the uh, new prime yeah, minister. Yeah, and so it might have been my mother and, you know, I'm sure my father was in on it too, but it was more her and her friends who were excited. Very telling. I have my own experience and it was quite dramatic. My experience of Trudeau-mania was the Saint-Jean-Baptiste parade in Montreal in 68, obviously. We were waiting for the parade. My aunt had an apartment that oversaw the parade. It was on Sherbrooke, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she had an apartment there. And next thing we know, I was seven and a half years old. My parents became quite agitated and something had broken over the news that there was a riot somewhere. And dad suddenly said, no, we're not staying. We're packing the kids. There are four of us, four little kids under seven and said, we're going home. How far away from the park were you where the the riot took place? I actually don't know. It's a very distant memory. But Trudeau-mania really was my introduction to politics. This is when I really became, Mm -hmm. suddenly became aware at the tender age of seven and a half that something was happening here. But let's get back to this remarkable event in our history because you really have to be over 60 to understand what went on here. And I look back on 1968 and I try to explain 1968 to family or younger colleagues or, or, or students. It's almost impossible to describe the vibe of that time. It's so very different. It's such another world compared to, I mean, I I write about 1911, 1917. I, I have a great deal of comfort in being able to describe these elections of the late 19th century. But when it comes to Trudeau mania, to try to convey the flavor, the atmosphere of 68, it really defies description. But you've done it in your book. You've taken a cultural event and you've merged it with politics. And that's what I want to talk to you about as we observe the 50th anniversary. What prompted you to do this book? I mean, you've written about John Turner. You've written about liberals in the past. What prompted you to do this book on Trudeau mania? What prompted it originally was a belief that scholarship should be relevant to the broader public. And so while I wasn't hoping this book would be popular in the sense of being a bestseller, I wanted to write something that would provide a point of entry for people into modern scholarship, modern Canadian historical scholarship. And so Trudeau-mania was something that I thought would resonate and be the hook that would get people involved. And then the other aspect of it that fascinated me was the role of the media, because I've become convinced that the media don't recognize the authority that they exert in modern Canadian mass democracy and pretend innocence as if they're objective in evaluating the power of the politicians but don't play a role themselves. And I thought this was an incident in which the media played a large role. You bring out a lot of names, people who had influential columns, people like Pierre Burton, Peter Newman, George Bain, Mm -hmm. Tony Westell. 
Were these guys the ones that ultimately shaped Trudomania? I mean, your book is really quite eloquent in showing that there is a back and forth. There's Trudeau pushing out ideas, pushing out impressions, and the Toronto-based media, Toronto-based mm-hmm. newspapers and television capture all this with, with great appetite and then reproject it onto the public. So my question is, was this a Toronto media story or was it more than that? Well, Toronto aspect of it is important, but you know, I, I wanted to be careful not to make it a kind of reductionist media conspiracy book because that's not what it's about. All the figures that you talked about, you know, they're representative of the rising professional managerial class and they have aspirations for Canada which want it to uh, reflect their interests. But they're only one part of a broader modernizing class in Canada. People who in the book I describe as, you know, as I just described my mother, as urban, educated, progressive, and, you know, small L liberal. And they have a constituency. So they're, you know, reflecting opinion at the same time as their leading opinion. And since we don't have access to what all the other members of that like-minded set were thinking in the same way because their thoughts weren't recorded, the role of the media is to, you know, publish. And so this becomes a methodological issue. As historians, we have access to what the media figures thought, and we have less access to what their like-minded audience thought. Let's talk about Trudomania again. When does it start, do you think? In December of 1967, I would say. You know, there's indications earlier that Trudeau has been noted as an up-and-comer and an intriguing figure on the federal political scene, but things don't really catch fire until December. There's a couple of things for context. One is in the summer of 1967, his unique style is noted. <laughs> and this it comes down to things just like the way he dressed. He's the minister of justice. He gets appointed in the spring. And then you start to see kind of fluffy lifestyle features on this new guy and how dashing he is. That's one thing. So there's that kind of superficial image stuff happening, which make him an object of fascination. But the other thing is the rising national unity crisis, which really is cresting in the fall of 1967. But there's something else of 1967, and you talk about it a great deal. And that's Expo 67. Right. Tell me about Expo 67 and what this meant to English Canada. I want to focus on English Canada because I think Trudomania is mostly an English Canadian phenomenon, but we can argue about that. But what what is it about Expo 67 that seems to carry the Canadian mentality to a different level? Well, can we roll back and do even sure. more context? Let's do history. Let's do history, Paul. Let's do history. <laughs> because the way I look at it is a convergence of some long-term trends. One is the, the general trend in the post-war period towards a more autonomous Canadian nationalism. So you've got Canada escaping completely the old British identity. And as it leaves that British orbit, it becomes much more important for it to distinguish itself from the United States because it's going to be captured by the gravitational forces of the new superpower. So in the immediate post-war period, you can see this rising crest of Canadian nationalism and it's economic with Walter Gordon and a company and it's cultural, you know, with the Massey Commission and the Canadianization movement and so on. There are key moments that are noted, like the flag debate, where very symbolically Canada is taking on a new identity. And meanwhile, in the background, you have all of these nationalist intellectuals who have a little cottage industry and manufacturing a new Canadian identity that is suitable for Canada's new status in the world, its new independent status in the world. So all of these things are happening in the background. There's a lot of intellectual ferment around them. There's tangible 
tangible things like the flag debate, but a lot of it's kind of abstract. And so with the centennial in 67 and Expo 67, you get a kind of simultaneous shared experience of communal bliss for <laughs> Canadians. And the, the idea of a Canadian nation takes on a lived experience that it hadn't previously. So it's really interesting, the combination of the centennial and Expo 67, because the centennial has a very pronounced retrospective impulse to go back and you know prove that Canada is now 100 years old. It's got its own history. It's a legitimate nation because it has a past. It's showing off. Yeah. It's bringing the world. It wants to bring the world. Well, there, that's exactly true. And that's one of the great payoffs of Expo for Canadians is that, first of all, in contrast to that retrospective impulse of the centennial, it's futuristic. And in contrast to, you know, the kind of shared experience, national identity that you get out of that retrospective impulse of the centennial, it wins all kinds of international acclaim for Canadians. So they've got two things happening at once, which are very gratifying to nationalism. One is the cultivation of a shared identity, but it's even more important in a way to have external validation from other nations. So out of this rich yeah. conditioning, we mm. have the emergence of Robert Stanfield. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And Pierre Trudeau. Mm -hmm. One seems to meet the zeitgeist, one not quite so much. Mm -hmm. What made Trudeau the right guy for that moment? The fall of 1967, in between September when Stanfield became conservative leader and December when Trudeau emerges, the conventional wisdom was that Stanfield was going to win the next election. And because he was the new guy, he was... People were tired of the Pearson liberals? They were tired of Pearson. They were tired of Diefenbaker and their wrangling and, you know, their old old fogeyism as it was seen at the time. There's a sense, and it's tied up with everything I just talked about and the Centennial and Expo, of what I think I call in the book a sense of apprehended transformation, a sense that Canada's being held back, that it's got this potential to fulfill, but, you know, the federal political scene is part of the problem because these guys are always bickering and there's these sordid scandals and they're also old, right? And each one of them has seemingly failed to fulfill his promise. They're both World War I veterans. <laughs> exactly. And in the back... We're talking about Diefenbaker In the Pearson. back of people's minds is Camelot and JFK, and they want that kind of dashing figure to represent the nation. It all conditions the environment, doesn't it? Yeah. So, you know, then Trudeau appears and provides answers to a lot of the things that are on the minds of these mod nationalists. For one thing, all these aspirations they have for the nation, which are goosed even higher by the Centennial and Expo, are also undercut by fear about national unity because Quebec in you know the mid-60s is making noises about needing a new constitutional deal and there has to be a... But Paul, yeah. you say, you have a wonderful expression in your book, you say that Pierre Trudeau was mod. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by mod? Well, the mod style... What is that? It's the mainstream, you could say, hegemonic response to the challenges of the 60s. There's very radical challenges to the establishment that are coming out of the left, the anti-war movement and student revolts and lifestyle liberations of various kinds in the 60s, which are all part of this ferment that makes 1968 such a peak moment. And not just because that's what I write about in my book. So mod is a style that if you think of, you know, Carnaby Street and the miniskirt and all that sort of thing, it's, it's a future-oriented style which celebrates change and seemingly in step with the times. Trudeau was that. It's fashion. Trudeau it's, was fashion. It's being fashionable. Without, but, but the key thing about it is that it's changed without any content uh, politically or any kind of real cultural significance other than change for the sake of change. And it's also change which is very good 
for, you know, in, in the fashion industry at, at least, and at all the design and ramifications and other industries that come out of the fashion industry, it's changed, which is very good for capitalism. It's good for the consumer economy because this, in celebrating change, you're creating planned obsolescence and, you know, goosing demand in, in the consumer economy. So let's get the chronology right. Stanfield wins the leadership of the Conservatives. Hudeau starts to point at the end of 1967 as a potential alternative to Mr. Pearson. Mm-hmm. It's not clear that Pearson is going to retire. It's not clear that he's going to right, that he's going to quit mm-hmm. politics, is it? At the end of 1967? Uh, the exact timing isn't clear, but right. I think the consensus is that he's going soon. He's going soon. I think he said that he would probably wait until after Expo at some time. So over the winter of 1968, the decision is made. Mr. Pearson will quit politics. No, he resigns mid-December of 67. Oh, in mid-December. Okay, okay. And so then you have all the regular suspects lining up. Including Mr. Turner and yeah. so many other people. Mm-hmm. When does Trudeau declare his uh, candidacy? Was it later in the Not game? Not until or? mid-February. So much later in the game. And he has a great advantage because Pearson is putting constraints on a lot of the leadership contenders saying, you know, you guys can't campaign really and you shouldn't be going here or there. But Trudeau isn't under any of those constraints. And his boosters are able to develop this outsider, dark horse alternative campaign. He's running, but he's not declared. Is Trudeau mania already working at that point? Yes. Okay. And then he becomes prime minister. He's sworn in as prime minister on April 20th. And the election is called soon thereafter? Mm-hmm. A few days later? Yeah, a few days later. I can't remember the exact dates. The convention's, what, early April, 5th or 6th? That's right. Then a couple of weeks later, he becomes prime minister, and I think it's within a week or so right. that they make that decision. And this is when Trudeau mania finally bursts out of the open. Right. What is it about this man and his style that makes him so special? Well, first of all, he addresses that national unity crisis. You know, what does Quebec want and the threat of separatism, if not some kind of constitutional change that will give Quebec special status? Because he is a staunch federalist, and and English Canadian nationalists are so pleased to see a French Canadian who is taking a hard line on defending federalism. And so that fear of the country breaking up that attends all the hope for the country is calmed. He embodies biculturalism and continued progress for the country. And I said continued progress because in keeping at the same time as he's promising to keep the country together, he's promising to move it forward. He's got this mod image. And the thing that brings him to the attention of most Canadians in December of 1967 is his reforms that he brings forward as justice minister to the criminal code, which address abortion and homosexuality and decriminalize them, and his liberalization of divorce, another piece of legislation. So suddenly he's in the national political spotlight, seemingly right in step with the liberating spirit of the 1960s. He's eminently progressive at a time when, and it's worth remembering the context, Martin Luther King has gunned down in mid-April. 1968. Yeah, and RFK. And then Bobby Kennedy will die in early w- first week of June after winning the primary in California or is about to win the primary in California. I mean, it's the very same time when these young princes of, of a new liberalism, of a new philosophy of life are gunned down and Canada's very much got its own here and becomes a mania on its own. I mean, we have this relatively young man. He's not young. I mean, he's 49 years old. It's important to remember. 49 years old, but he is a swinging bachelor. These are his words, not me. He enjoys life. He seems to be a hedonist in a country that didn't particularly favor hedonists in the past. Yeah, and so I I see this as, you know, a kind of mod hedonism. 
as opposed yes. to profound change because uh, in many ways he is very conservative. But that's important. I mean, it's an important aspect that you bring out. I mean, he is he is moderate, but he's also moderate. Yeah. At one point in the book, I think I say he's mod and you could read mod as both modern and moderate. And somebody once said in this great line that uh, while their Kennedy was shot down, our Kennedy was, you know, wading through crowds shaking hands and kissing babies in the spring of 68. And very good point. Two other things that contributed to his appeal. And then your point about RFK is very interesting because he's getting the same kind of mania in the spring of 68. So let's talk about that perhaps. But third thing, aside from national unity and aside from the fact that he seems to be in step with the 60s by being progressive in this criminal code legislation, the third thing is his lifestyle which seems to be, you know, liberated. And you said it already. He's a bachelor. He's a swinging bachelor. So he's right in step with, you know, the sexual revolution and everything that's happening that way. And then the other thing is that's really important is the way he comes across in the media. People have talked endlessly about what it was visually that was appealing about him. But just the way he spoke in the media seemed to be refreshingly frank and you he say, keeps getting all of these reviews that here's the real deal you know you're not getting the standard bs from a politician he's speaking the truth to us and so that 60s notion of authenticity is embodied in the way he comes through the media you say that you underline it a number of times he speaks to the media with with power he speaks with authority with authenticity mm-hmm. and that seems to be very appealing well there's this interesting thing that's happening where you know, I, I get into this a bit in the book, and it's a bit more abstract, but there's a lot of what I call mediation anxiety in 60s culture, and that is Marshall McLuhan stuff, all that sort of thing, just trying to come to grips with what the role of the media is in a modern mass society and how whether it represents the truth and whether you can trust the media. So an interesting thing that Trudeau does is that he kind of foregrounds the interpolation of the media between him and his audience. And he comforts the audience by saying, yeah, I realize that we have got this intermediary role, which is possibly making our communications less direct than than they should be. So he kind of calls out the media. And I think that his audiences find that very reassuring. And refreshing. Yeah. The reality is that we all know Trudeau wins a very important majority. The, the logjam of the last many years, of all the 60s, finally is broken after minorities in 62 and 63 and 65. We now have a liberal majority in 1968. A lot of people have said that perhaps the Trudeau mania thing has been overblown. That, you know, if you look at other more important victories, we don't think of a mania. Think of Diefenbaker in 1958 mm-hmm. as an example, or even Mulroney in 1984, crushing conservative victories, but we never think of Diefenbaker mania or a Mulroney mania. What made those contests? I mean, can can we understand Trudeau mania by understanding these other contests, the contrast between 68 and 58 and 84? I mean, the other two victories were far more important than what happened in 68. And yet 68 has... More far-reaching electorally, too. Well, very much so. I mean, we talk about that, too. But why is it that we don't think of Diefenbaker as Diefenbaker mania? It simply didn't happen. There there was a a great enthusiasm for Diefenbaker. I think it's more comparable to Trudeau mania than Mulroney's victory. And it's interesting, too, because Diefenbaker made effective use of television just the way that Trudeau did. And yet the medium wasn't quite as mature at the time. This would be a study that would be very productive to look at it in more detail. But the way I look at it, my first impressions of it is that the populism that attended Diefenbaker's election was more of a folk populism. And so there's 
in terms of the question of modernizing Canada, he was almost saying, well, first of all, the Liberals have been in power for how long? Forever, 20 some odd years. And he was saying these liberal technocrats and technocracy is a feature of modernity or modernization are out of touch and autocratic. So it's a populist appeal, it was a folk appeal, and it would have been those forces of tradition who would have rallied around Diefenbaker, the same forces that a decade later were really put off by Trudeau, the, the ones that I call the Trudeau-phobics in the book. So if you interpret it in terms of the way I'm putting it, maybe too simplistic a binary between modernizing and traditionalist forces, then Diefenbaker is a victory for the traditionalists, and Trudeau is a moment where that splits in favor of the modernizing forces. I'd go in favor of another binary. I mean, I like your idea of a folk mania for 1958 and for 1984, but for Trudeau, there's a sex appeal that Diefenbaker and Mulroney didn't have. They're both, I mean, married men. Diefenbaker is much, much older. Mulroney is younger than Trudeau, in fact, in 1984, but he's also a married man with kids. It's not the same thing. Trudeau had this sex appeal, and not least, this generation of boomers that really were a phenomenal receptacle for his energies. I think that the baby boomer generation coming into its own in 1968, having all these girls chasing him on camera, I mean, there was obviously something to that. It wasn't yeah, like, <laughs> you know, that's why he was so lucky that he was unmarried at the time. And... <laughs> but it wouldn't have been the same thing as what I'm saying. Had he been married, had he been married with children, Trudeau-mania probably would not have happened in the same way it did. No, it's and... a combination of his personality and of the historical, call it that, the historical context of 68-68 that made that experience of history unique. Yeah, and the sex appeal thing is a very kind of mod marker, right? It stands in to suggest that he is progressive and that there's a lot of content here in terms of moving the country forward and liberalizing policy, but it doesn't really promise anything. And those suggestions are there. But, you know, the sexual revolution is something that stands in as a marker in Trudeau mania for all of these other, it's suggesting all these other possibilities without promising anything. And in that sense, it's very successful. But it won't last, will it? Well, I think that a lot of people still see Trudeau as a sex symbol subsequently, but there's the mania, I don't think, lasts in the same way. There's always this kind of aura about Trudeau subsequently, but there's never that kind of collective hysteria. The reality is that in 1972, the government is re-elected to a minority, and Truomania seems to be a very distant memory already by 1972. He was elected again to a majority in 74 that'll last till 79, and then again a minority. So it's an interesting, it's a checkered history. At the end of the day, 1968, when we look at the polls, Paul, we see that the big gains were made in Ontario and in British Columbia. Can you explain British Columbia? <laughs> Ontario, the media, I can see it. British Columbia, is it again that Pacific, the the particular political culture of the Pacific, the same culture that greeted RFK with such enthusiasm? Was it the same thing? There's a lot of NDP support in British Columbia that goes to Trudeau. And this fits with my modern versus traditional split thesis because the working class NDP support doesn't. They're very suspicious of him. <laughs> but it's the professional managerial, upper class, educated university urbanites who are Trudeau supporters and make the difference in a lot of those ridings. And I'd also go back to my mother, if we can. You mentioned 72. The riding in 72 that was hanging in the balance and was only won by the Liberals on a recount was Ontario riding where we lived. Oh, yeah. And the what MP- riding was that? Do you remember? What was the title? Ontario. It's now part of Durham. Oh, okay, okay. okay. So if you look at it historically, it's a riding that's been mostly conservative over the years, but sometimes it's tilted towards another party, whether it's farmers or NDP or liberals. And it was taken by the liberals in 68. And 
probably you know because of the Trudeau factor, right? And so that tr- that factor fades. This is analogous to those log jams during the '60s that you were talking about earlier in in federal politics. So, so there is a quite a balance, and it's hard to tip the balance one way or the other. The difference in Trudeau mania is that not that it's a landslide like the Mulroney victory or the or the Diefenbaker one. It's that the Trudeau files really liked him a lot and worked really hard for him. And they also produced this very beguiling image for him in the media. And that was enough to tip the balance to take ridings like Ontario, which after the the glow had faded, was right back in a dead heat in 1972. The Liberals took 24 seats in 1968. Most of them came out of Ontario and British Columbia. To give Mr. Stanfield his due... And they lost them in the East. That's right. Mr. Stanfield took most of Newfoundland, everything in practically Nova Scotia. Of course, he was from there. Most of New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island went conservative. And Quebec only gave a few more votes to Mr. Trudeau than it had in 1965. The vote really goes to the Réalement Créditiste in 68. So Trudeau mania is really quite potent in Ontario, in British Columbia, and to a certain degree in, in Alberta, uh, Saskatchewan and Alberta, they both also go Tory, but there is a boost in the number of votes that Mr. Trudeau will get. At the end of the day, it'll make a five percent, I mean, it's a five percentage points difference, but it'll give enough for the Liberals to take 24 seats, which is, which is considerable. I'm sure that they gave up something in terms of, you know, traditional support because the credit support in Quebec is an interesting example of that. There was, you know, all these scurrilous rumors, a smear campaign circulating about Trudeau that he was far too progressive <laughs> in, uh, in various ways that we don't need to get into. It's a fascinating aspect of the, of the election campaign, though. And so what you have is that same kind of reactionary versus, or at least traditional, versus progressive dynamic happening in Quebec as well, where he was, his mod image was too much for a lot of traditional people. To finish up on this, Paul, Romania, a unique experience in Canadian politics. Do you think it's ever likely to happen again? It could. I think what you had happening there was a very you know, feisty cultural and political scene. You know, 68 is, we haven't gone into the context of 68 in much depth, but there's a lot of stuff that is up for grabs. The height of the Vietnam anti, well, it's really the, the start in a way of people recognizing that Vietnam is wrong. And Johnson and has so, announced that he won't be running. Exactly. There's the Paris Spring and student uprisings all over the world. A very critical moment. And then you have that overlaid with all these nationalist issues, national unity and nationalist ambitions in Canada. And then you have the arrival on the scene of a figure who seems to offer an answer to all of these nationalist ambitions and international issues that are then in play. And he might not be the perfect figure for it, but he's close enough that he can be marketed as such. And so those conditions can happen again. But one of the things that I suggest in the book is that it hasn't happened since. And so there's this moment at which, you know, Canadian identity crystallizes at, you know, the high point of the 60s. And nobody's had a similar conjuncture of circumstances and the candidate who defines that image to you know, redefine it since. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you for the insightful discussion. That was Paul Litt talking about true Romania some 50 years later, a remarkable point in our political history. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the Alan Slate studio in Ryerson University. It was recorded on February 9th, 2018, and produced by Hugh Backhurst and Pernia Jamshed. Thank you very much for everybody, and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>